0: Matthew, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41, pens the following words. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. Go ahead and take a seat. Let me give you just some brief... Context of what is taking place here. Some of the religious leaders, some of the religious elite have approached Jesus, have come to Jesus and said, Will you give us a sign to prove the validity of who you say you are, to prove the validity that you are indeed the Messiah? Give us a sign. Now it's interesting. In my Bible, I have to turn one page back to look at the beginning of Matthew chapter 12. Maybe it's right there on the same page for you. But if you look back at the beginning of Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12 starts with Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Matthew 12 starts with Jesus healing a man with a withered hand. In the words of one comedian, there's your sign there's your sign. And this wasn't the first time that Jesus had performed a miracle. This wasn't the first time that Jesus had done something miraculous out of the ordinary to confirm the validity of his identity. Jesus had done that numerous times prior to this, but yet these religious elite come to Jesus and basically ask him to prove himself. If you're really who you say you are, then prove it. Put your money where your mouth's at. Show us something And Jesus responds to them and he says, you're an evil and adulterous generation. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I've already shown you enough to charge you as condemned, guilty as charged. You have seen enough light, you have been exposed to enough light that you stand condemned. You're an evil and an adulterous generation. Because you seek for a sign, because you don't believe me, because you don't take me at my word. And so Jesus tells them, no sign will be given to you except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And so what Jesus does is, is he, he, he goes toe-to-toe and he tangos with them with their own scriptures, Remember, the scribes and the Pharisees would have been very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. As a matter of fact, those would have been their scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. And so Jesus takes them back to the story of Jonah, with which they would have been very, very familiar. And Jesus says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, talking about his death, his impending coming death. In other words, Jesus is saying, you've seen many signs to this point, and I'm not going to give you a sign right now, but there is a sign coming that is far greater than any other sign that anyone has ever seen, because the Son of Man will be crucified, dead, buried, but yet he will rise on the third day. The sign that trumps all signs, Jesus says, believe in me, but you're wicked. You're wicked because your heart is full of disbelief. Your heart is full of skepticism when it comes to who I say I am. Jesus goes on here and he says, the men of Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Why? Because the men of Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, repented at the preaching of Jonah, who was far less than the greater Jesus. And you... Scribes and Pharisees, you religious elite, you, much of Israel, have seen the Messiah, and yet you refuse to believe. And yet you refuse to believe. Here's a principle. I'm not going to expound upon it here this morning, but you can write this down. It's not in your notes. The principle is this. The greater the light, the greater the responsibility. The greater the spiritual light that you have been exposed to, the greater the responsibility that you have to respond appropriately. You catch that? It's the principle that I think Jesus is, is pulling out here. Nineveh repented at the message of Jonah, which was far less light than you have seen, scribes and Pharisees. You are responsible for a much greater light, and friends, let me tell you, you and I are much more responsible. We have the completed scriptures. We stand post death and victorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have his word. We know that he has been victoriously raised from the dead. We stand today having been exposed to and seen more light than any other person in redemptive history and we're responsible for it. question that Jesus will ask at the last day when you stand before him, and you will, it is appointed once for a man to die and then there is judgment. When you stand before your creator maker, the question you will be asked is what did you do with me? What did you do with me? Not what did you do at church, not what did you attend. Not what did you say about me, but what did you do with me? What did you do with the Lord Jesus Christ? The greater the light, the greater the responsibility. Where I want to head this morning is the fact that Jonah is a type of Christ. Jonah is an Old Testament figure prefiguring the Messiah in many ways, albeit He was sinful and imperfect. The life of Jonah in many ways prefigures the coming, at that time, Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus is making the emphatic statement here in Matthew 12 that he's greater, that he's greater. Jonah is the type. Jesus is the anti-type. Jonah is the shadow. Jesus is the greater reality. I want to give you five ways this morning. This is not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination, but five ways this morning that Jesus is greater than Jonah. Jesus is greater than Jonah. Write this down if you're taking notes. Point number one is this. Jesus is greater than Jonah in his person. Jesus is greater than Jonah in his person. Both Jonah and Jesus were both Jews. Both Jonah and Jesus were prophets. But Jesus is the very son of God. Jonah's ministry was but to one city. Jesus, according to John 4, 42, is the savior of the world. Jesus is greater in his person. Jesus is greater than Jonah in his office as well. Jonah was a man, a sinful man. In need of God's redeeming grace, Jonah was but a vessel. He was a clay pot. He was filled just like we are with much imperfection. When God told Jonah to go and preach against Nineveh, he rebelled and he needed to be chided. He needed to be admonished. He needed to be rebuked so that he might obey. But our Lord Jesus Christ is wholly different. Our, Our Lord Jesus Christ is utterly distinct. Jesus is the obedient and perfect Son of God. Jesus did not receive his message in bits and pieces like Jonah did before he communicated it. The Lord Jesus dealt with and came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus said of himself in John chapter 3 verses 31 and 32, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness of all that he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. The one who comes from above, the one who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus is saying there that he's greater, just as we sang. Greater. There's the contrast. Jonah was a man. Jesus was God in flesh. Jonah was given words from the lips of God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God and spoke as Yahweh, spoke as God. Jesus was intimate with the Father. Jesus knew and declared the full revelation of God. Just as Jonah came from Israel to Nineveh, Jesus came from heaven to earth. Jonah was a prophet and he spoke some things, but Jesus is God in the flesh and he spoke the very living word of God. He declares the truth in all things. The whole counsel of God concerning our redemption is declared to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater than Jonah in his person. Jesus is greater than Jonah in his office. The second way that Jesus is greater than Jonah is in his obedience. Jesus is greater than Jonah in his obedience. Jonah was marked, as we saw all through our study, by disobedience, by being very reluctant. Again, that is one of the places that we see ourselves mirrored in the life of Jonah. At times, we're very disobedient. At times, we're very reluctant. At times, we struggle with the very thing that we oftentimes demand from our children, and that is first time obedience. Second time obedience is not obedience, it's disobedience. God demands first-time obedience from his children. How are you doing there right now? I have no idea what each one of you is is going through as far as circumstances, as far as trials, as far as the things of of daily life. The question, though, is are you practicing first-time obedience wherever you are? Are you practicing first-time obedience whatever God has called you to? even if you don't like it. Even if you don't like it. From the opening commission that Jonah received from God to go to Nineveh, through the last chapter of the book, Jonah revealed himself as being narrow of heart and disobedient. He was reluctant But how different when we turn the pages of Scripture and we see the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus was commissioned of the Father, and he was sent to secure the salvation of God's elect, and he did it. Not under duress, but joyfully. Joyfully he came. Willingly, obedient. It was Jesus who said to his disciples after they had returned from the village, Uh, bringing food. Remember, Jesus had just had a conversation in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. And at the conclusion of that conversation, Jesus's disciples enter back onto the scene. And they enter the scene telling Jesus that he should eat something, as if Jesus doesn't know when he's hungry and when he's not. And so his disciples say, Jesus, you you need to eat something. And you know how Jesus responds here, don't you? In John chapter 4, Jesus responds, and he tells his disciples, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then he goes on and he defines it. In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, my my duty is to be obedient. My food is to be obedient to the will of him who sent me. Jesus was the obedient Son of God who came to perform all the Father's good pleasure. Are we? Are we? Even when Jesus knew that obedience meant that he must be humbled down to the deepest sorrows of reproach. Even when Jesus knew that he must bear our penalty upon Calvary's cross, yet he was obedient, Philippians chapter 2 obedient to the very point of death death on a cross even when Jesus knew that his obedience would bring him into the awful and horrible darkness of the cross yet our Lord Jesus Christ was the obedient son of God not a reluctant prophet not a reluctant savior The desire to obey his father burned within him. Think about that as an adjective. And ask yourself, is it an adjective that could be used to describe your desire, your yearning to obey? Does it burn within you to do your father's will? Do you yearn to obey? That was certainly true of Jesus. Jesus is the greater Jonah in his obedience. Number three, Jesus is greater than Jonah in his power. Jesus is greater than Jonah in his power. Let me highlight this in just a couple of ways here for you. First, Jesus is greater than Jonah in his power of judgment. In his power of judgment. Jonah was sent to proclaim judgment of the Almighty God against those who would lift themselves up against God, but he himself, Jonah, could not bring that judgment to pass. All Jonah could do is declare the judgment that God told him to declare, but Jonah had no power to bring that judgment to pass, but Jesus does, Jesus does. Jesus executes all the judgments of God perfectly, with unerring precision. Jesus has the power not only to declare judgment, but he has the power to bring it to pass. He sits upon the throne, and all men shall be judged by him. He is the mighty son of God. He is greater than Jonah in this respect. But Jesus is also greater than Jonah in his power of salvation. Again, Jonah had no power to save Nineveh. All Jonah could do was preach judgment, preach destruction, but he couldn't bring that to pass, but neither could Jonah bring salvation to pass. I mean, think for a moment. If, If the men of Nineveh, if the people of Nineveh had come to Jonah and said, Jonah, we believe your message... How how can you help free us from our shackles and chains of sin? Jonah would say, "I, I have no power to do that. Furthermore, the very fact that Nineveh repented at Jonah's preaching showed the power of God, not the power of Jonah. Because we know, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians, that we don't preach with power. Our preaching oftentimes comes with great feebleness. Our preaching comes with great timidity at times, so that the power would rest upon God and not upon men. But one greater than Jonah is here. One greater than Jonah is here, who who not only declares judgment, but has the power and the authority to execute it. One who has the power and the authority to grant mercy and grace and to bestow salvation, to give repentance Christ is the one who gives repentance. Jesus Christ is the one who breaks the power of sin. Jesus is the one who cuts cuts away our, our bracelets and our shackles and frees us from condemnation. Jesus is greater than Jonah in his power. Number four, Jesus is greater than Jonah in his message. This is greater than Jonah in his message. I want to camp here for just a few minutes. Let me, let me give you a few subpoints here. This would be a good place, under point number four, to, to write an A, B, and C. Because I want to show it to you in three facets. Jesus is greater than Jonah in his message, first of all, in the certainty, or in the surety of his message. In the certainty or the surety of his message, Jonah, knowing that he had no other option, preached only the tip of the iceberg of God's message. He fulfilled the letter of the law in that God told Jonah to preach 40 days, yet 40 days, and then Nineveh will be overthrown. And that's exactly what Jonah said. But what Jonah did not say is any of the great and high and lofty theology that he expounded in chapter 4. Jesus, or Jonah rather, did did not come and say that, that God is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Jonah didn't say any of that. He was obedient to the letter of the law. But he left out the God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He didn't offer that message to Nineveh, and it's interesting to note that after Jonah preached to Nineveh, how does the king respond? Can you remember back to chapter three? How does the king respond? The king of Nineveh asks a question. Remember what the question is? The question he asks is, "Who knows?" God may relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Chapter 3, verse 9. That's the question that was asked upon Jonah's preaching is, who knows? Who knows what God is going to do? Jonah knew. Why didn't he tell them? Why didn't Jonah tell Nineveh that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? He didn't share with them the certainty of his message or the, the gospel message when it came to God's mercy and his grace. The message of the gospel isn't a message of doubt, friends. It's not a message of uncertainty. We have the certain promise of grace. The, the gospel gives us Certainty. The gospel leaves us with no doubt. The gospel leaves us with no vagueness. The gospel leaves us with no shadow. The gospel leaves us with no mist. It's clear. It's concrete. I mean, listen to Jesus' own words here, thinking about how concrete the gospel message is, how certain the gospel message is. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, all you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. That's a certain definitive statement. I'll give you rest. I'm merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and I'll give you rest. Come to me. Stop toiling in your sin. Likewise, Jesus said this in John chapter 6, all the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's a definitive statement. It's a certain statement. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's a definitive statement. Shall not perish but have eternal life. God himself, through the prophet Isaiah, promises, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, They shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Paul tells us everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? These are all definitive statements, friends. There is no uncertainty in the gospel message. What we preach should never leave someone saying, maybe God will do what he said he'll do. No. We preach the gospel with conviction, with power, with grace, but with truth. Jesus is greater than Jonah in the certainty of his message. Jesus is greater than Jonah in the richness of his message. The message of the gospel blooms forth. It displays brilliant color, smells that are vibrant. It's beautiful, it's rich, it's depthy. It's glorious. Such is the message that Jesus preached. Nineveh was only given the hope that God would relent from the destruction that he promised. But the gospel message is that Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, places the burden of our sins squarely on his own shoulders. The gospel message is that that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How rich a message! How beautiful a message! How vibrant a message! How life giving a message! The gospel message isn't just maybe God will relent. The gospel message is that Jesus stood in your place and God still did not relent, but crushed his son because God is just. Sin demands the righteous justice of God. God cannot sweep our sin under the rug and turn a blind eye and forget as if it ever happened. God would be unjust if that were the case. Just as the judge who knows that he stands eyeball to eyeball with a convicted murderer, but yet lets him go. He would be unjust. He would lose his license. He would be debarred. He's unjust. Not only would he be unjust, but he'd be tried and convicted himself. Should be, at least. We have a flawed justice system, obviously. But God's justice system is not flawed. God's justice system is not flawed. Every particle of sin that has ever existed will be judged. And here's the problem, friends. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. Every single one of us stands guilty of sin. Every single one of us without exception, man, woman, boy, girl, child, adult, senior adult, And everyone in between has missed the mark of God's perfection, has missed the mark of righteousness. And the question at the end of the day is, how is God going to make an unrighteous man or an unrighteous woman right with himself? Something has to be done for our sin. God wasn't joking around. He wasn't kidding in the garden when he said, as surely as you eat of it, you will what? Sin demands death. Sin demands death. God crushed his own son in our place. That's the richness of the gospel message. The offer of the gospel and the joy of salvation is that all my sin and all my shame and all my judgment became Jesus's on the cross, and all of his privileges and all of his promises became mine. You catch that? How rich a message! How rich a message. Matthew Henry once wrote, Come and see the victories of the cross. Christ's wounds are my healing. His agonies are my repose. His conflicts are my conquests. His groans are my songs. His pains are my ease. His shame is my glory. His death is my life. And his sufferings are my salvation. He gets what I had, and I get what he has. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus in this way, you are the beneficiaries of untold spiritual wealth. What are you doing with it? And who are you sharing it with? Who are you telling about your greatest treasure? Here's a truth you can bank on. And if this encroaches upon toes, let it humbly be so. A truly converted man or woman. Let me pause right there and restate that phrase. A truly converted man or woman does not desire to go to heaven alone. Jesus is greater than Jonah in the richness of his message. Let me give you the third way here. Still dealing with the topic of message Jesus is greater than Jonah in the heart of the message bearer the heart of the message bearer is distinctively different in the case of Jonah and Jesus Jonah's religious pride caused him to hate the Ninevites the only reason that the Jonah went to Nineveh was because God made him go in, in a very real sense God was getting ready to kill him if he didn't go. God was willing to sink the little dinghy that he was floating on in the middle of the ocean to help his prophet know that obedience was demanded. and we should never be so arrogant, friends. there are plenty of examples, both Old Testament and New testament and, and purpose or the point in my saying this is is not scare tactics, it's not just to, to instill fear, but it is a reality. God just might take one of his children out then let his child continue in disobedience. Just let that settle in for a moment. Matter of fact, don't let it settle. Let it stir you up let it make you ask questions let it make you examine yourself and me as well remember the lighthouse illustration that we started our study of Jonah with that battleship out there on a foggy day having a conversation unbeknownst to the battleship commander with the lighthouse worker the battleship commander tells the lighthouse a little blip on his radar to change his course the the lighthouse Man says no you change your course The battleship commander says change your course I'm a commander And the lighthouse man says I'm sitting on a rock And I'm not going anywhere Such is the case here Such is the case here The lighthouse isn't moving God isn't moving God's children Just like Jonah Will obey One way or the other Will obey, so let's do it joyfully. Let's let's submit joyfully. Let's willingly obey. Here, my Lord, send me. Where whatever you say, I'll do. Wherever you say, I'll go. When you say jump, I'll say how high, because I want to please you. Obedience to the Lord isn't just some sort of rote religious experience. We're, we're not gaining God's favor by our obedience. We gain God's favor because of Jesus' obedience credited to our account. We are now freed to obey, freed from the shackles of sin and shame, freed to obey and free to do so with a joyful heart, a joyful heart. While Jonah ran away from his assignment, think about Jesus' heart here. Jesus ran toward his Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jonah went to Nineveh because he knew that God would chastise him greatly if he didn't. Jesus, on the other hand, preached the gospel to those who hated him, knowing full well that his obedience would cost him his life. Jesus knew from the onset that obeying his father, that preaching to the very people who hated him preaching to his enemies would cost him his life yet he went willingly and voluntarily. jonah showed up only bearing an announcement of judgment and condemnation a message that though he didn't want to go in the first place probably didn't hurt his feelings to preach but jesus on the other hand said for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather that the world through him might be saved. Thinking about the heart of Jonah and the heart of Jesus, after Nineveh's repentance, Jonah sat sulking outside the city of Nineveh, hoping for their destruction. But Jesus, on the other hand, stood outside Jerusalem in Luke chapter 14, and he wept over Jerusalem's lostness. He longed for Jerusalem's repentance. We see at the end of Jonah that Jonah was more selfishly distressed and grieved over the death of a plant that gave him temporary shade than he was over the destruction, the the potential destruction of a city with over 120,000 people, many of whom did not know their right hand from their left hand, spiritually or morally. But yet, Jonah was all up in arms about the plant. Jesus, on the other hand, for the joy set before him, willingly endured the cross and voluntarily despised its shame. Why? So that he might turn sinners into sons. Jesus is the greater and truer Jonah. Number five, and last this morning. Jesus is greater than Jonah in his death and resurrection Jesus is greater than Jonah in his death and resurrection one of the radiant truths the book of Jonah is that salvation belongs to the Lord Matter of fact that phrase word for word is back in chapter 2 verse 9 salvation belongs to the Lord God can use whomever he wants whenever he wants I've encouraged you on multiple occasions to memorize Psalm 115 3 our God is in heaven he does whatever he pleases God can't deny himself, he can't lie, he can't sin. Outside of that, God can do whatever he wants in accordance with this character. Our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Sadly, Jonah was running away from God so that pagan sinners in Nineveh wouldn't be saved. And so what does God do? Well, God puts Jonah on a boat in the middle of a great storm with a captive audience of pagan sailors. Some of which, as we noted in our study, just may have been Ninevites. God says, if you're not going to Nineveh, I'll bring Nineveh to you. God has done that to us in many ways. Church, rise up. If you're not going to go to the world, then I'll bring the world in your backyard. I'll bring the world to you. So what happened then, Jonah, Jonah would be a witness for the Lord whether in his obediently going to Nineveh or his disobedient fleeing, but he would obey nonetheless. It's interesting to write, or to note rather, that the sailors responded in the middle of this storm by fear. They feared the Lord exceedingly. The sailors offered sacrifice to the Lord. They made vows. What took place there? I I mentioned back in our study uh, there that I I think what happened is pagan sailors were converted. I think that, that men on that boat were converted. Turned aside from their vain idols and feared the living God. Those sailors referred to Yahweh five times in that chapter but how were they saved how were the sailors saved in a practical sense well they were saved by the substitution of Jonah Jonah was hurled that word is used many times in Jonah's book there's there's some irony there there's a play on words the Lord hurled the wind Jonah was hurled into the sea and then the sea stopped from its raging Jonah was thrown, thrown into the sea of God's wrath, and the sailors were subsequently temporarily saved from the storm. Well, let me turn your attention again back to our text, Matthew chapter 12. Look at your Bible there. Look particularly or specifically at verse 41. Jesus makes this emphatic statement with all that as some context. Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. We see see a a prefiguring or a type in Jonah. Jonah was hurled into the sea of God's fury. And that in doing so, the sailors were saved. The seas became calm. Jonah, in a sense, was a sacrificial substitute. Now, God had continued plans for Nineveh. God had continued plans for Jonah. But in that sense, Jonah was a sacrificial substitute that prefigured the coming Messiah. And so when Jesus says here, something is greater than Jonah, he's referring to himself. Now, it's important to note that commentators have argued over the, the meaning of the general word something. What does that mean? Something greater than Jonah is here. But what's meant by that relatively general term? And I'll admit to you, admittedly, the Greek word, pleon, translated greater or much or many or more is neuter. It's neither masculine nor feminine. But while Jesus did not say someone greater than Jonah is here, the something that Jesus refers to, namely his death and resurrection, cannot be separated from Jesus himself and his unique personhood. So in saying something greater than Jonah is here is to emphatically imply someone greater than Jonah is here. You're standing on holy ground. I am the true Jonah. Jonah was a sketch. Jesus is the portrait. Jonah was a shadow. Jesus is the reality. And someday, Jesus is going to step back into this world, and he's going to calm every storm. He's going to still every raging wave. He's going to destroy destruction. He's going to break brokenness, and he's going to kill death once and for all. How can he do that? How can he do that? Those are promises that are made all throughout the Old and New Testament. How can Jesus do that? Well, Jesus can do that because as he hung on the cross, he, Jesus, was thrown willingly into the ultimate storm, under the ultimate waves, the waves of God's searing judgment, the waves of sin and death. While Jonah was a sacrificial substitute for the sailors caught in a physical storm, Jesus offers himself as the sacrificial substitute for the spiritual storm of God's wrath. And this is a storm that we're all in. I said this back earlier in our study of Jonah. Whether you feel like it or not, we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. We are all exposed, naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Whether you feel like it or not. That's the reality of our fallenness. Whether you feel like your your life, like the boat, is broken into pieces or about to be broken into pieces, the truth remains, it is appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. And so Jesus, Jesus willingly steps on the scene and he throws himself headlong into the only storm that can actually sink us. That's the storm of eternal judgment. And that storm wasn't calmed until Jesus gave his life. The storm of God's wrath was not calmed. It raged on. It raged and it raged and it raged and it raged until Jesus finally hung his head and gave up his spirit. and said, it is finished. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath without mercy, so that we could drink the cup of God's mercy without wrath. Brothers and sisters, I pray that the reality of Jesus bowing his head into that ultimate storm is burned into the core of your being. God the Father crushed his son so that you and I would not have to stand before the crushing weight of God's justice. But here's a subsequent truth. Here's a subsequent beautiful truth to that great truth. If God didn't abandon you in the ultimate storm of his wrath, he certainly won't abandon you in all the lesser storms of life. Some of you in here this morning are in the midst of some pretty turbulent waters. We live in a Genesis 3 fallen world. Brokenness exists everywhere. Brokenness exists in our relationships. Brokenness exists in our bodies. Brokenness exists in our hearts. Brokenness is, is a, a right way to, to speak about our, our emotions and our thoughts and our wills and our obedience. Broken. 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 But if God did not relent from crushing his own son on Calvary's cross... Will he not along with him graciously give you all good things? He'll never leave you nor forsake you in all the lesser storms of life that you encounter as you journey along through this Genesis 3 fallen world. Someday soon we have the great hope that the captain of our salvation will return and he'll still all storms for all eternity. No more tears, no more pain, no more death. Let me leave you with this here this morning. In the late 1700s, the English Baptist pastor, John Rapon published a collection of hymns that was actually meant to be an appendix uh, to a hymn volume that Isaac Watts had written. And Rapon's collection was the jewel that we have sung for the last 230 years as the church. How firm a foundation. How firm a foundation. Listen to these words. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of woe shall not overflow, for I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. The soul, the soul that all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no never, no never forsake. That is the captain of your salvation. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you.